You know, there's a phrase that has been thrown around a lot over the last few years um, to the point that you're probably sick of hearing it. How many of you are tired of the phrase, this is the new normal? right? Uh, you know, you hear it ever since the pandemic. It's, we've talked about some of the different things about, you know, supply chain issues just seem to be a part of the new normal. I went by Kroger last night and noticed some empty shelves and uh, thought, you know, this is just kind of the new normal. I, I can think of a few times in my life, you know, by the way, I've also heard other, others say that normal is just a setting on a dryer. Um, and that's true when it comes to people. There are no normal people, but there are cultural norms. There are, are things that kind of categorize us as society that, that we just sort of accept and are just kind of what we think they are. But every once in a while, something happens that disrupts those. The pandemic was one of those with the supply chain disruptions and the lockdowns and the vaccines and all these things. There's just kind of this new normal. The other event that I can think of in my life that really brought that about was September 11th. You know, when I think back, I remember I flew for the very first time the summer before 9-11, and I remember my parents walking me to the gate there at Roanoke Airport, you know, and my friends that I was meeting on the other side met me there at the gate, you know, you could just, it was just different. There was less distrust, it felt like, in a lot of ways, and I had friends that would shortly thereafter be deployed to go fight overseas, and, and a lot changed as we kind of found our way in this new normal after 9-11. And for those of you who are too young to remember that, I hate that for you because there was a difference in the world before then. Now we've got this new normal that we face. And here's what I want to challenge us with this morning. As we look at the new normal we're in, and this is not going to be directed at the pandemic, but my, my question for you is, are there things that you and I are accepting that are the wrong normal? What is it that you and I think of as normal that the Bible condemns? So as we look at some really difficult passages this morning, my challenge for you is going to be careful what you consider normal. As we go through this passage, we're in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19 today. We're going to cover a lot of ground, and uh, this is going to be one of those pointless messages. Um, no, for those of you who aren't usually here with us, uh, I usually will have an outline, and we'll have three or four points that you can follow through in the message. Because we're covering so much story this morning, because we're, we're, we're looking at a lot of different events, we're just going to walk through this passage. So it will have a point. It's just not going to have points. So if that bothers you, I'm sorry, get over it. Maybe next week, okay? Um, as we're diving in this morning, though, we're gonna be picking up here in chapter 18. We're in the middle of a study where we're going through Genesis 12 through 50. We've been looking at the life of a guy named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. We've seen that God has promised to give them a child and uh, they're, all of these things we've seen. Through all of this, our, our main theme has been the idea of a faithful God and flawed people. And as we look at this this morning, we're going to see that even more clearly again, because we're going to see the faithfulness of God displayed in some of the most uh, horrific events in human history in some respects. It's just one of these times where we see sin on full display. Now, as we get into chapter 19, I want to be real honest with you. Um, if you haven't read this chapter in a while, it's gross. The, the, the scenes described in it are things that should repulse us. No matter what your political stripe, background, things like that, there are some, some things we're going to read about that will make you uncomfortable. I'm going to try to handle these as delicately as we can and not make them unnecessarily graphic, but the reality is this is a graphic passage of Scripture. 
And in it, what we're gonna be looking at, we're gonna look at a couple of different people and their main reactions. We're gonna look at the first part in chapter 18 about Abraham and how he responds to what God's doing and what God's saying. And then we're gonna spend the majority of our time looking at Lot. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Abraham and Lot are uncle and nephew. Lot is, is Abraham's nephew, and he's been living in a city called Sodom. And we're going to pick that story up. As we look at the way that Lot responds to what's going on in Sodom, we're going to see that, that he had adopted some things as normal that we should reject. And, and my challenge to you is going to be to do that same thing. Evaluate what we're hearing, what we're seeing in the culture around us, and be ready to reject that in light of what God says, okay? Now, through this all, we're going to see God's grace and God's hand through it. You stick with me, okay? So as we're looking, let's start off in, in Genesis chapter 18. As we go through it, we're going to see, starting in verses 1 through 5, let's see how it all begins. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of his tent to meet them, bowed to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you've passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Now, what's happening here is Abraham sees these three visitors, and it seems pretty quickly that he's aware that there's something unique about them. We don't know how long it takes him to fully realize what's going on, but as we move through the passage this morning, most likely what this looks like is, again, just like God appeared to, to uh, Hagar through the angel of the Lord there we looked at last week, well, this is another appearance of God where he took on a human form, not like he did when he came as Jesus as the baby taking human humanity on himself forever, but this is a, a time where he appeared in human form with two angels that are with him. Now, there's scholars who debate some of those things. We could get into that discussion. Most likely, that's what looks like what's going on, okay? So here, God shows up with two angels at Abraham's house, and Abraham is the consummate host. So he says, gentlemen, why don't you sit down and take a rest? I'll bring some water for you guys to be able to wash off your feet. I'll fix you guys something to eat. And so he goes about welcoming them. Um, as you go through, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly when it happens, but he does start to understand that these people are more than just people. So he pulls out all the stops, he prepares food for them, and has Sarah working on that as well. So in the conversation, as the course goes by, we pick up in chapter 18, verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. By the way, read this and catch the comedy in it. All right, there, there's kind of a funny moment in this. So the Lord said, so by this point, we've realized, now this is God speaking. This is not just some group of people passing by. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. You remember chapter 17, God had already made that promise to Abraham that he and Sarah would have a child. Here he's reiterating that promise. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out, my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll come back to you, and in about a year, she'll have a son. Verse 15, Sarah denied it. I didn't laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. Isn't that great? Like, just look at this moment. 
All of a sudden, these angelic visitors are outside the tent, and one of them says, yeah, hey, Sarah's going to have a baby. Sarah's been in the tent the whole time, eavesdropping on the whole conversation, and it says she laughed to herself. That means this may not have been audible enough that even Abraham would have heard it sitting outside the tent door, but God heard it. And Ezekiel says, so why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. Yeah, you did. Okay. (laughs) Right? This is the God who sees, the God who hears that we talked about last week. He sees and he hears. And in this moment, he makes this incredible promise to Sarah, you're going to have a baby. In a year, I'm going to come back and you will have a son, even though you're well past that time. It's a beautiful promise and a beautiful moment. By the way, it's, it's neat because as he makes that promise, there's another time that you hear an angel say something similar, isn't there? You see... Uh, By the way, one thing I realized, I don't know that we've actually explained this. If you're not super familiar with God's word, you may get real confused by some of the things we're talking about. So Sarah and Abraham are getting ready to have a son whose name is Isaac, okay? Isaac is gonna be Israel, like his his descendants are gonna be the nation of Israel who's also the Hebrews who are also the Jews. If you've not grown up in church, you may not have realized that those are all the same people. That's who we're talking about. Well, so, so they're going to have this son, Isaac. And, and so Isaac's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
Abraham has responded really well. He, he's seen God. Now, Sarah had a little bit of a hiccup there where she laughed at what God said, but God corrected that in her heart to where Isaac, by the way, his name, we'll talk more about him, hopefully, Lord willing, next week. Isaac's name in Hebrew is pronounced Itzak because you separate all of the vowels, which sounds kind of like laughter. And his name literally means he laughs because Abraham laughed, Sarah laughed, and God laughed at them <laughs> and gives them this child that's joy, right? So as you look at this passage, we've seen some beautiful things so far. Now, now it's getting ready to take a shift. Abraham has had this conversation with God. God's reaffirmed the promise. He's showing his faithfulness, and Abraham's doing really well. So then God begins to have a conversation, either with the other angels or within the, the Godhead. I don't, I don't really know. He uses the plural here. We don't know for sure what he's saying. But here he says, should we tell Abraham what's about to happen? He again acknowledges that God's uh, getting ready to do something unique through Abraham and making him great and making his descendants into a great nation. So Abraham enjoys this privileged status in God's kingdom. But he says, well, then let's go ahead and tell him. Verse 20 of, of chapter 18. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. I'll go down to see if they, what they have done justifies the cry that's come out to me. If not, then I'll find out. That's a scary, scary thing. We affirm a doctrine that God is omniscient, okay? That means that God knows everything that can be known to its fullest extent. There is nothing that can be known that God does not know, okay? So, so when God says these kind of things, we see it here, we see it at the Tower of Babel earlier in Genesis. When, when God says those things, it's not that God doesn't really know what's going on in Sodom and actually has to come down and see for himself, but rather God is demonstrating his kindness and his mercy and his grace by going and checking it out firsthand. He knows firsthand. He's God. He's present everywhere. He's fully aware. But, but in showing his goodness and grace, he's going down to just verify what's being taking place here. So God says, I'm going to go check out and see if Sodom really is as bad as everybody says that it is. So here's what we find out. It is. We've already seen hints of that back in Genesis chapter 13. If you remember, Abraham and Lot, their flocks had gotten so big, they couldn't stay together. So God told Lot, you go wherever, uh, wherever you want to go. I'll go the opposite direction. So Lot goes and he settles there at Sodom. And in that discussion, there was this parenthetical note there in Genesis 13. Now, the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. So we've already seen foreshadowings of this. We've already seen, remember, Abraham wouldn't take the gifts from the king of Sodom once he rescued Lot and all the people that had been carried off into captivity. You remember, he said, no, no, I'm not taking a penny from you because I don't want you to ever be able to say you made me rich. So Abraham has distanced himself from the people of Sodom, although it's still within visual range for him. He can still see it from where he's living. But he's distanced himself from that. He's separated himself from the wickedness that's there. But God says, I'm getting ready to go check it out. The, the two men, it says, leave. So the two that are with him, we find out later in 19 that those really are angels for sure. Those two leave and start heading towards Sodom, and the Lord remains there with Abraham, and he begins to talk. Abraham does something incredible here. Now, Lot, his nephew, lives in this city, and he knows how wicked it is, and he knows that God's about to judge it. So God be, Abraham begins to plead with God on behalf of the city. He says, God, it, you're, you're a just God. Would you sleep, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? If there's, if there's 50 righteous people, 
would you spare the city? And God said, I'd spare it for 50, then 40, and 30, and 20, and then 10. And God said, I would spare it on behalf of 10. Now, this is an incredible moment, by the way. Abraham, remember, has been walking closely with the Lord for like 25 years at this point. 25 years ago, he wouldn't have had the boldness or known the character and nature of God well enough to be able to have that discussion. But he pleads on the justice of God and says, God, would you spare the righteous people? Would you spare the city on behalf of those righteous? Gets it down to 10. Now, we don't know why he stopped at 10, but it seemed reasonable enough. And so God leaves and Abraham goes back to his tent. Thus far, we've seen good stuff. Here's Abraham, loving the Lord, responsive when he sees these men coming. He's pulling out all the stops. He's hearing these promises being reiterated, and he's interceding for people based off of the righteousness and the character of God. Abraham's doing pretty well in this story. But then in chapter 19, we start switching to Lot. As we look at Lot's story, before we we pick it up, though, Abraham cares for Lot. He understands that God's just and that God's righteous and that God can't let sin go unpunished. But now, as we're looking here in chapter 19 now, compare what we've seen with Abraham, this godly guy, with what we see of Lot. And this is where I want us to be careful what we consider to be normal, okay? Pick up chapter 19, verse one. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. Interesting, by the way, isn't it? God puts the same kind of picture. Abraham was sitting outside his tent, Lot sitting outside the gateway. These guys walk up, both stories very similar. But it says, Lot got up and went to meet them. He bowed with his face on the ground and said, verse two, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them and they ate. Now, again, this is starting off really similarly to what Abraham did, right? So he's still acting the part of the host. He's inviting these men, but there's something different here. Because the angel said, no, no, we'll just stay out in the square. And Lot says, no, no, you have to come with me. Because I think he knew how the nights of the uh, events of the night would unfold. He knew what was coming. So he, he asks the men to come with him. He begs them to come. It changes dramatically from here. Pick up in verses four. We're gonna read four through 11. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them at the entrance and shut the door behind him. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they've come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door, but the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness so that they were unable to find the entrance. The horror of this scene, as an angry mob of men 
shows up at Lot's house to rape the men who came. Can, can you even fathom this? The angry mob shows up and ask this, and Lot's suggestion, his best idea is, hey, I've got two daughters. Why don't you just take them? As a dad, can you even fathom that? Now, I know that, that hospitality in that culture was, was something far greater than what we would think of in our world. We, you know, people come by the house. It's not that big a deal for us in them. It, it was, but those are your daughters, man. As a dad, it's your job to protect them with everything you've got. Let them tear you limb from limb before you let them touch the, your daughter's. And yet, this is his suggestion? That this is the best that this guy could come up with? The wickedness of this moment should shock us. See, the people of Sodom had taken the beautiful gift of sexual intimacy, which God designed for a man and a woman to enjoy within the confines of the covenant of marriage, and they had twisted it. They were living out what Paul would later describe as happening throughout humanity. Romans chapter one, Paul writes, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Now they were not only pursuing same-sex relationships, they were doing it by force. But look at, at the core, guys, we cannot compromise on the fact that the Bible makes it clear that God's design for sexuality is one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage for one lifetime. That's the only expression that's appropriate. And I recognize that as I say that, there may be some of you who are here or who are watching online who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And, and the world around us has been telling us, that's okay, guys, it's not. And some may look at this passage and say, well, that's not talking about a, a monogamous, loving, same-sex relationship. That's talking about gang rape. And it is, but at, at the core, guys, this is coming from a perversion of what God's created. And with all the love that I can muster, guys, I want you to know that's not God's best. And we can't accept it as normal because we love God and we love you too much. And listen, guys, I understand. We've, we probably have folks in this room who are struggling with same-sex attraction. You're scared to say it because of this kind of passage. But the reality is the mercy and justice of God is so good. He loves you so dearly. He has a plan for you that is so much better than anything that this culture would offer. And so I'd beg with you and plead with you, not just in this, but in everything, to submit it to Christ. If you're struggling in that way, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to walk with you. We want you here. We want you to know the grace of God. But we love you too much to say it's okay. Now, in this moment, we see that in the depravity of it, we're going to see that this stain of Sodom stuck with Lot and his family. 
You see, this, this perversion of sexual intimacy didn't just affect them in this moment. We're gonna see as we get further on in the chapter, it followed them after that time, but, but let's kind of keep going through the story. So, so the angels strike the men with blindness and even that's not enough to stop them. They still keep trying to grab the door. They still keep trying to perpetuate this. But in that moment, they, took, they look at Lot and say, you've got to get anybody that's in your family and get out of the city. Pick them in verse 15 or verse 14, excuse me. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who are going to marry his daughters. We would say fiancés typically. So his daughters were engaged. They had fiancés. He said, get up, he said. Get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Guys, Angels just struck a whole mob blind and they think he's joking about God's intent to destroy the city. Some fascinating stuff we see here. Now, pick up in verse 15. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16. But he hesitated. He hesitated. Guys, an angry mob just tried to assault you and your daughters. Angels just struck them blind and they said, God's getting ready to destroy the city. And you're hesitating? You're hesitating. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us why. Was it because he was hoping maybe his son-in-laws would show up and they'd get out together? Was it because he just loved the money that was there and, and he couldn't imagine leaving that behind? We, we don't know, but regardless, God had made it really clear what he needed to do, and it's like he's a, asleep or he's in a fog. He's just wandering through this, and he's just missing the whole thing. He hesitated. But in light of all that, Look at the rest of verse 16. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out of the city, left him outside the city. Because of the Lord's compassion. Do you see this? in the midst of the righteousness of God, in the midst of the judgment of God. Some people will try to, to divorce the two and say that God's either too just or too compassionate or whatever it is. But guys, listen, God says, look, I, I love you so much. I'm going to drag you out of this. He wouldn't leave Lot there. I would have left you, okay? If I were the angels in that moment, I'd have been like, look, I did everything. You're on your own. Good luck but because of the Lord had compassion on Lot, he reaches in and rescues him. Goes on. Verse 17, as soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plane. Run to the mountains or you'll be swept away. So what do you do at this point? Run. What does Lot do? Argue. Look at verse 18. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you've shown me great kindness by saving my life, but I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, this town's close enough for me to flee to it. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. Like, look at this moment. 
Like, you, you've drugged this guy out and, and said, just go, man, just go. And he's like, I, I can't, I can't make it. Well, God, what if I go over there? Just go, man. And that's what the angels say. They say, all right, fine, we'll leave Zor, but you better go because I can't do anything until it happens. You better get out of here. So Lot flees to Zoar with his wife and his kids. And God keeps his word. Verse 23, the sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. God said, don't look back. Get out of there. Don't look back. You know, it's something we can only guess at. We don't know. If they had gone to the mountains, it says later they do go to the mountains, they hide in a cave. If they'd gone to the mountains, is there a chance that they would no longer have been able to see the city? and Lot's wife would have been spared. Now, we don't know. She might still have looked back. But it seems like Lot's unwillingness to do what God told him to do, Lot's apathy, Lot's Lot's unwillingness to give up what was normal for him may have cost him his wife's life. That also is on her. She looked back. We don't know why. But in both of them, in Lot and his wife, we see that that there's this drawback to the culture that they'd been living in. They had accepted the wrong normal. This should not have been okay. And they should have run for their lives. But they didn't. They didn't. Now, the account's not over. In fact, in some ways, it gets worse. Eventually, Lot and his daughters moved to a cave in the mountains. I think Lot figured out, last time I was in a city, it didn't go real great. So it almost seems like he's, he's at, reacting out of trauma. So he's like, I'm just going to run up to the mountains. I'm going to hide. Lot made it to Zor. God spared him. Then they moved to the mountains. The daughter's fiancés were killed in Sodom. And the daughter's are convinced that they're never going to have husbands, so they come up with an absolutely terrible plan. Read chapter 19, verse 31. This is Lot's daughters talking. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's no man in the land to sleep with us. This is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He didn't know when she lay down or when she got up. The next night, they repeat this with the younger daughter. The stain of Sodom stayed with them. They had so absorbed this culture around them of sexual perversion that they didn't escape it even when the city was destroyed. By the way, the two kids that they have are Moab and Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites. Centuries later, they're going to cause lots of problems for the descendants of Isaac, the Israelites. They're going to be a thorn in their side for a lot of years. 
So again, when they're embracing this sexual perversion, it's leading to these issues that last for years and years and years and years and years because they're accepting the wrong normal. Let's pull all this together and see what we find in it. First, look at the difference between Abraham and Lot. Do you see that stark contrast now? Abraham had distanced himself from the wickedness of Sodom. He, he saw it. He was aware of it. But he wasn't putting himself in the middle of it. He stood out from it. And as he did, you see him sensitive to the things of God. You see him interceding for others based off the righteousness of God. Then you have Lot is right down in the middle of it and seems to accept some of this as normal. You see, what's interesting is this was apparently the kind of thing that characterized the city of Sodom. They were wicked. They chose to reject God's design for life, marriage, and sexuality. And Lot seems to accept that as normal at some level. Here's what's really fascinating though. When the Bible talks about Lot later, it refers to him as righteous. 2 Peter chapter 2, talking about the destruction of Sodom, he said, and if God rescues righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. There's no indication of that in this passage. So God, in, in his wisdom, revealed that to Peter, that in this passage, we see Lot as a loser who's willing to sacrifice his own daughters to save his skin. But at some level, he was a righteous man. That means he was saved, guys. That means he had a relationship with God but he had so accepted these things as normal. Yeah, he was upset by some of it. it. It tormented him. It bothered him, but he still chose to live right smack dab in the middle of it. He could have moved. There was plenty of places he could have moved his family. But instead, he chose to adopt the wrong normal. Now, what this tells us again is the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God that a guy like Lot could be declared righteous. Now, as we'll talk about in a second, that's only because of what Jesus has done. But here's my challenge. I don't want to be the guy who, if Scripture were to record my life, they would look back and say, oh, he was righteous? Man, everything I saw from him was godless. I didn't see a single thing in him that was worth redemption, I, but he was righteous. And that's what I don't want for us. Guys, listen, I, our kids are in public schools. My kids, okay? We have internet. We have Netflix. We have all kinds of things. I'm not saying that we should pull out live on a commune, turn off all access to the outside world, retreat. But as we engage with the culture, we've got to be careful what we're accepting as normal. Okay? We've got to be careful 
what we're accepting as normal. This passage is a warning to us all. Yes, this text clearly indicates that homosexuality is not a valid way of living. It is not a God-honoring lifestyle. Between this text and others we see throughout the totality of Scripture. But here's my biggest fear as I preach this passage. There may be some of you who are struggling with same-sex attraction, and so for you, you need to hear that as lovingly and as clearly as I can. But here's my big fear, that the majority of us in this room would sit here and give a hearty amen to the fact that homosexuality is sin. Meanwhile, if the statistics are accurate for our congregation, at least 50% of the men are using pornography monthly. Yes, we'll stand up and boldly say that homosexuality is sin, and it is. But so is adultery. So is pornography. So is hating other people. You see, it's easy for us to sit here and stand up on this high horse. And I'm not saying that all sin has the same ramifications. All sin is sin, though, in that it disrupts our relationship with God. It may have different implications of what happens in our society. But the reality is, as we look at this, don't walk out of here smugly thinking you're okay because you think homosexuality is a sin. That's good. I'm glad. I hope that we're agreed on that same page. But what about the way that you talk about people who disagree with you politically? What about the way that you treat people that you have a fight with? Do you pursue reconciliation? What about the way that you spend your time? What about your goals in life? What about what you define success to be? You see, we'll accept the wrong normal. That's one of the things we've been looking at on Wednesday nights. Every time we take a long look at what God says in his word, we see how dramatically different the way God has called us to live is. We were just in James chapter one this week where he says to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. That's not a worldly way of looking at life. A worldly way of looking at life is for me to try to get rid of whatever trials I can. Instead, what God calls us to do is to recognize that the trials and temptations that we face are to prove the faith that we have to grow us into maturity in Christ. That's a radically different orientation towards the problems of life. You see, even the way that the world looks at things like forgiveness. Forgiveness has fallen into the therapeutic model where I forgive you because of what it does for me. And yes, there are benefits to that, release from bitterness and things like that. But the reality is, biblically, forgiveness is not just about me, it's about us. It's about seeking reconciliation between this relationship, just like Jesus has reconciled us to God through his death, burial, and resurrection. It's much bigger and much broader than just making me feel good because I forgave you. You see, as we look at this, guys, we need to challenge what we consider to be normal. No matter what side of the aisle we're on, what our sin issue is, the old-timey thing was, If you're up north, you can preach against smoking and tobacco use all day long. Just don't mention drinking. If you're down south, you can preach against drinking all day long. Just don't mention tobacco. Because all of us have this thing that we've gotten comfortable with. We've all taken sin and we're okay with it. And we'll harp on some and exclude others. So my challenge for us today is what is it that you're taking as normal? What is it that God's convicted you about? 
and you hesitate to leave it? What is it that maybe God's given you victory over this sin, but if you're honest, you keep looking back. See, that's what Lot did. He accepted the wrong normal and the stain of Sodom stayed with him. I don't want you to walk out of here realizing, thinking that, you know, I I would never be like Lot. Because we all are Lot. Actually, in many ways, we're all the men of Sodom. We have all, in different ways, throughout our lives, rejected the righteousness of God. God has said, this is what you're supposed to do and to be, and I've said, no, I want to do it my way. Every single one of us has done that. But God, in his mercy, came. Not just to walk around the city and see that it really was as bad as we thought it was, but instead, in Jesus, God came and walked around and and experienced all of our mess and took it to the cross as he took on himself the punishment that you and I deserve. So it's on him we fall. It's not, well, I would never do what Lot did. I've never, you have. We've all done it. And the only hope that you and I have is that there's a God who is compassionate enough that out of his compassion, he will grab us and drag us out of there. Out of his love and his mercy, he took the punishment for my sin and drug me to himself. Even when I didn't necessarily know that I needed that or that I wanted that, God in his love and his mercy drew me to himself and he forgives our sins when we come into that relationship with him. And now I'm right with God, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. I'm righteous Sean, like righteous Lot. But now here's my challenge. For the rest of my life, I don't want to be like Lot, just barely making it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we we jumped over this passage a little bit. Paul's talking about the end of our life. He says, no one can lay down any foundation other than what's been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. In other words, if you are saved today, if you're right with God, it's because God's drawn you to himself and you've responded in repentance and obedience and your life is built on Jesus Christ and his righteousness. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day will disclose it when we stand before God because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now leave that verse up for just a second. This is a weird passage. This is not talking about whether or not we get to go to heaven. That's sealed and settled by Jesus' death for us on the cross. However, for those of us who are right with God, who've been saved by Jesus, there remains for us a judgment of reward. At the end of our life, God is going to take all of our stuff. We don't know how this happens. We don't know exactly all the specifics. We just know what it says here. God's going to take everything I've ever done, my thoughts, my actions, my words, the way I've treated people, all of that, and it's all going to be sitting out in front of me and he's going to put a match to it. Everything that I've done that is for Christ, that's God-honoring, for his glory, that's the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Those things I'll receive back as a reward. Everything else is burnt up. 
If anyone's work is burnt up, he'll experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That sounds like Lot to me. Now, I don't know out of just these few vignettes, that's all I know about Lot. But if the Bible declares him righteous, he was saved, but I imagine it was through fire. A lot of his works got burned up. I don't know what this looks like. This is not purgatory, by the way. That's not what this is talking about. I don't know how this all can play out. But I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to look back at my life, and I'll have plenty. I will have plenty already. If I died in this moment in this pulpit, which some of you think, yeah, the vein on the side of your head's popping out, it probably will. But if I died in this moment, I'd have plenty of wood, hay, and stubble to get burned up but I don't want to live that way for long. So my challenge for you today is what are you considering normal? What are you building with wood, hay, and stubble? You may know that Jesus has saved you by his grace and his mercy, but how are you living? This week, I would challenge you as you go through what you watch, what you hear, what you say, the conversations you have, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way you do all these things, the stuff you don't even think about. Where are you buying into the wrong normal? And ask God to give you the strength to see it. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes this morning. Here in this room, my my challenge to you is what do you need to do? Has God maybe shown you that there's something in your heart, something in your life that you had accepted as normal that he rejects, he condemns? In one sense, that's painful because that means that there's a change that's going to have to take place. You need to respond in repentance and obedience. In another sense, it's a beautiful thing. Because when God convicts us of sin, that's that's like the angels grabbing Lot and dragging him out saying, this is not okay, get out of here because he loves us. What do you need to do today? What do you need to change this week? Maybe there's nothing that comes to mind right now. Maybe you feel like you're doing okay, and and you may be, but would you ask God, like what David prayed when he said, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins? Would you ask God to bring these things to the surface this week that you may have accepted as normal that aren't or shouldn't be? Yeah, maybe everybody at work talks like that, but God's called you to be different. Maybe everybody at school is doing this, but that's not who God's called you to be. Where are you accepting the wrong normal? Rest in the grace of God to change it. I'm gonna let you just continue there with your head bowed and your eyes closed. If you wanna talk with me about any of these things, I'm down front and I would absolutely love to to talk with you. If, however, you have, just do business with God there if you need to. And in just a minute, I'll close this in prayer.
Come talk to me if you need me. Father, first of all, we just want to thank you. Those of us in this room who know you, who've been saved. We thank you that you rescued us. That you came to us, you drug us out of our sin and placed us into the kingdom of your son. But God, if we're honest, there are still so many times where our hearts are still drawn to look back. Where we still have that stain of of the life we came out of, the life we're surrounded by. And God, we pray that you would give us grace to be able to honor you, to be like Abraham, to see these things from a distance, to intercede for those who are caught in them, to know your righteousness and your justice. And God, I recognize again that I may be talking to some folks this morning who are wrestling with same-sex attraction at different levels in different ways. As our culture has so often said it's okay, we pray that you would give them grace to hear that it's not. To hear that they're loved by a God who created them, who designed them for a relationship with him, who has such a tremendous plan that's so much better. And then for us, as we struggle with so many other sins, whether it's pornography, whether it's the way we use our time, the way that we talk to or about other people, the way that we look at the life that we have and the purposes we live, God, would you use all of this? Would you help us to reject what's not of you? Help us to live like we're part of your kingdom. Help us to reject the things that our world says are normal that you reject. Help us to embrace your righteousness and your holiness and in the process to love well those that you've placed us around. God, would you be honored today to help us redefine normal as honoring you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.